I awoke on my fifth floor Taipei apartment on a Monday morning, ready to nail everything on my discipline checklist perfectly. I was able to get to sleep the night before at a decent time, considering the jet lag from India that still won't leave me even after ten days of being in Taiwan. With no coffee in the house, I headed out into the hot, balmy morning to get my cup from a nearby family mart, a kind of East Asian 7-Eleven that happened to be on the opposite corner of an actual 7-Eleven. Still on track and coffee in hand, I trudged up the four flights of stairs back to the apartment and dialed my folks since it was still Easter in the States. Yeah, things are good. No, no, I, I still don't know what I want to do with my life yet. Yes, I love you too. I then was actually able to still do my morning absolution of 30 minutes meditation. This was a near miss. Because if I do anything else in the morning besides just tea or coffee before meditation, the whole endeavor is usually abandoned. So we're doing good here. Still poised for a productive day. But at the end of my 30 minutes of sitting, and with the jet lag, it was already lunchtime. So it would be a quick meal, and for inspiration, just one hour of escape at Danamora. Then, nothing left for me to do but to get to work. Yes, it looked like I was going to achieve something today, just as I had set out to do. With everything out of the way, I swung over to the desk and was about to enter the launch codes, when I looked at the time and suddenly realized something. My Taiwanese connections in town would be arriving at a wine and spirit expo taking place at the Taipei 101 in mere minutes from now. This was a unique situation. I thought about the many times I had come to the end of a trip, whether it was me living there or just on vacation, and how I had completely missed out on all the unique opportunities that only those locations could offer. The very opportunities a tourist may spend thousands of dollars to experience, I would just pass over. I once had an apartment in the suburbs of San Diego that was six blocks away from the beach, and I only hit the surf twice. When I lived in Bali for a year, I never witnessed the local dancing, nor slept with a professional sex worker in nearby Bangi Wangi. I remember feeling sad during these moments, reflecting that I had passed on something that was right at my fingertips all the while. Yet during the meantime of these visits, my motivation to carry out these activities either never occurred to me or was interrupted with the idea that I didn't want to rush my overall experience there. Better to bide my time and spread out the tourist traps evenly, lest I be left with nothing to do and no more thrill to pacify my impatient dopamine-depraved mind. After missing so many opportunities with this flawed thinking, I vowed that I would never let that happen again. So Taipei 101 won. I traded discipline for drinking and gallivanting, and the dopamine started flowing immediately. I could say that I knew this would happen, but I'm not so sure. Who can ever know if the cosmos functions according to a written fate? Who could tell if there was any other possibility than for me to abandon my discipline? But if it is fate, then could I be more in accord with that function? Step out of its way and simply bask in its grand decision, 
Accept it from minute one and leave behind the stress and struggle that only comes from fighting its divine Tao. Could I adhere to this natural flow, ease in with the direction of the current, rather than beat myself down in my futile resistance of what I knew was true all along, that I would be attending an exposition of wine and spirits. If we accept our fate in the beginning, if we put down our dukes of pride and cease from pulverizing our knuckles out of sheepish ignorance, we would then reclaim all the energy spent second-guessing its all-knowing way and store it, turning it into pure potential. Then again, if we accept our fate after the fight, it's acceptance all the same, but we are exhausted, fallen. But a fallen man can always heal impossible wounds by simply stopping, retreating, and waiting. A man who is pulled back for a time suddenly finds that all of his pride, his ignored intuition, all his bullheaded karma has melted back into the cosmic soup and is forgiven. We are blessed with another chance, a chance to heighten our sensitivity to the everlasting stream of truth so that we don't make these mistakes again, a chance to ignore our ignorance and to finally surrender to the one. But it's always in our finest fiddle that the apple seems the most sweet. When I was around London, when David Bowie passed away, my buddy, who was a celebrity in himself, he was a celebrity and maybe the best person to travel with. He was uh, the head of the Jester Guild, which was based out of Muncaster Castle, and it was the home of Tom Fool, the original court jester, who, believe me, they told me they had, they had very, very dark souls. They got very black hearts. He actually grew up half a block away where David Bowie was born. Brixton was in South London, and he and is now is it's, it's a decadent, wild place. But I was a David Bowie impersonator, and yes, I was a Canadian David Bowie for many years. Now he took me back to where he grew up, and the response I got from the locals was epic. Now there is a strong affinity between me and David Bowie. And he was one of these unreachable superstars. He was on a different continent, etc., etc. My similarity, uh, the, the fans and David Bowie fans are very, very smart people. You do not try to kid them. I've got the same stage presence as David Bowie. He's got this amazing, he's got this amazing mental energy, let's say. And that is the killer. That's a ringer on stage, and they can see it a mile away in England. But to walk, get an escorted tour of where he grew up, it was the strangest feeling that I was almost like looking through his eyes. I could see it from his perspective, the genius, David Bowie. Then they drove me actually into London, into Westminster Abbey, where they took a look at me. They parked us right in Westminster Abbey. They sent me over to Saville Row, a few blocks away, and I walked into the best tailor in the world, officially, which is Jeeves and Hawks, at $10,000 or much more per suit. These fit so well, you couldn't even wear a pen. But I walked into the best tailor in the world, 
and there was giggles and laughs and hand signals and all that and a bunch of smirks because that to the public at large David Bowie had passed away some time before but oh no he was right there wearing a Jeeves and Hawk suit this was too much I smiled back at them I went down the Saville Row to H. Huntsman and Company, which is another, you know, infinitely reputable London tailor. Oh, geez. The cover for the Ziggy Stardust album was taken just behind H. Huntsman and Sons, and I walked in, and I thought, well, I, I'm on a roll. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join old Hollywood. I'm going to join the old boys. It feels, it feels right. You know, it feels good. I walked into this historic, ultra-snobby, Taylor, and they had a whole fucking pedestal, a whole altar to David Bowie with literally his uh, patterns, his forms, everything on this big wall. They looked at me, I looked back at Bowie, I looked at them and all this, and it was, it was a trip. And they miss him there. I ended up getting the Royal Rockstar Tour of London to Scotland, to Ireland as a de facto David. That's the only way to see England, really. Oh, I will repeat myself. My friend was uh, the head of the Jester Guild, that is the center of the Court Jester Guild in England, which is way north by the Scottish border. We were making a pilgrimage back there. The same family have been there since 1250. Nothing has changed since 1250, it seems, except for one thing. On this huge estate, all the call signs for the radio were all David Bowie albums, and who should walk in? So, uh, among other things, I was adopted into a castle of very historic David Bowie fans. The acknowledgement I got from some of these hotels in London at Christmas time were they have raised to 24,000 pounds a night that they're celebrity hungry and I got mobbed. It was like a Harold Robbins novel. So, <laughs> uh, there'll always be, there'll always be an England. If you're going to be a rock star, be a rock star. I'm, I am 50-50 on whether David actually passed away. I think he's played a trick on somebody, but it's, it's not Elvis. I think he's still alive, but he's not there. But I was. This is A Slice from Doc Savage. Thank you for your time. Oh yeah? The cherry blossom. The flower of spring. Yeah. Sakura. Yeah. Yeah, Sakura. Yeah. Cherry blossom. I arrived at the wine exhibit and met up with my party. We would visit each booth of largely unknown alcoholic brands from largely unknown areas of this or that country and drink these tiny drams from plastic oversized thimbles. I learned later that one would get a deeper pour if we supplied our own receptacle. They were renting glassware near the entrance of the hall but they had run out of rentals and were only selling them now. Shady. I opted out. I thought that paying $7 for a wine glass was a gimmick, and I didn't know what I would do with one glass in my East Asian apartment after the fact. 
So we settled for our drops of alcohol, sip by sip, and moved our way through. Nice. Which one did you buy? You might think that one could get quite drunk in this way. I thought if anything, the mixing might do it. On any given night of drunken debauchery, I tend to stick to one type of drink in order to avoid the hangovers. Hangovers that have become much more potent since my turning the ripe old age of 28. I know my body. If I mix during a heavy night of drinking, I'm put on suicide watch the next day. So I was dubious about the amount of mixing during this convention, but I plunged in anyway. Is this the natural intuition I'm supposed to be listening to? Credit card? Sure. Let me think. I, I promise. I love, I love Kubota. It turned out the amount of alcohol in every pour was so small that the sum total, in my best estimation, even with the amount of booze we hit, would only add up to about a teacup. But a teacup consisting of every single alcohol known to man. The best swill in town. I don't know, but I don't feel hungover today. Yes, one could get drunk here if they really wanted to, and I'm sure people were. But to me, the place was courtly. Just to the north in Japan, I attended an Oktoberfest celebration about 10 years back. It was the middle of the day, the beers were $25 apiece, and the event had no traditional connection to the Japanese whatever. But we were all certifiably housed. The day went on without much incident. I was charmed by the razzle-dazzle of the salespeople. I picked up my favorite brand of sake, and I was even given a late birthday gift of shisho leaf plum wine by a member of my party. I even got a chance to impress the one drinking woman of the group with a taste of the Napa Valley varieties. You know, show her what real wine tastes like. But by the time we got to the booth, we were so buzzed and had so many different kinds of alcohol on our palate that it all began to taste like a bad hangover. I suspected she didn't care much for it. Evidently, what she did care for was the wine that the charming Spaniard was selling at the Spanish wine booth. To me, the Spanish wine tasted like they were only using the grape skins to make the stuff. The kind of swill that turns your teeth red instantly. She bought three different bottles from him at the last moments of the convention. Those Latin lovers, they make it seem so effortless. It's strange to me that listening to the natural flow means that I would be deciding not to be disciplined with my goals, and that it was better for me to instead get intoxicated and possibly suffer a hangover the following day, destroying yet another workday of productivity. It makes one question one's goals in the first place, whether the initiation of those goals were poised in the natural flow of things, or if the very establishment of those goals was an act of fighting the current to begin with. But isn't that what discipline is for? Forging iron out of unwielding ore? Bending nature to our will? I gave up the workday and followed my supposed intuition. I drank some alcohol. I bought some alcohol. I went to bed at a decent hour, and now I am here, without the air conditioning on, because it makes too much noise. Sweating my balls off. Making the episode about what happened when I decided to go, instead of whatever the episode would have been, had I not decided to go. I didn't like this very much when I was writing it before, but I guess it's okay. Do you like the episode? Prior planning means nothing. 
you find yourself in a situation after an ordeal, maybe an extreme one, maybe getting, uh, maybe being in the worst part of a communist nature, maybe after having fight out, maybe fighting out, after huge sexual, financial, physical ordeals that put you into a Harold Robbins novel. Oh boy. If you're going to be a rock star, be a rock star. You understand. <laughs>